This is Sam. This is Paul. This is Justin. And this is Southpaw. Hey, and one more thing. If you love the show and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash southpawpod. So today on the podcast, we have a returning guest, Justin Hamilton, and he's somebody we've talked to in the past about his work as an MMA coach and also as an academic. But now on top of that list of slashes, he's also an owner of his own martial arts academy that he opened very recently. So welcome back to the show, Justin. Thank you very much for having me back. So we are actually at the school right now, but for people listening, Where is your school? So our school is located at 2318 East Colorado Boulevard in Pasadena, California. It's called Modern Martial Arts and Fitness. People don't normally open up a martial arts academy. They open up a karate academy or a taekwondo academy. Or more recently, a lot of people open up Brazilian jiu-jitsu academies. So what is your school about? Yeah, so I like to think of our school as, uh, I've been referring to it as a teaching university for the mixed martial arts. And so we primarily focus on Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Muay Thai, as well as wrestling. And we also have a proper MMA class itself. And so one of the things that I've found in my experience training for MMA is that um, while a lot of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu academies, uh, they, they teach really good Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu classes, MMA academies, rather than teaching mixed martial arts classes, uh, more commonly run mixed martial arts practices. And for me, this is a, a really critical distinction. And so at MMA academies, they'll often have, you know, they'll have jiu-jitsu classes, they'll have some Muay Thai classes or other striking classes. But when it comes to MMA, it's usually focused around um, competitive athletes, and they'll really just run situational drills and such, but they don't break it down in the same way that they would otherwise approach Brazilian jiu-jitsu or, or some of the other arts. And so to me, this was something that was not only a whole I saw in terms of how um, athletes develop and, and prepare for competition. But also, uh, to me, w- we were missing what was a really, uh, really great opportunity for, for hobbyists to really learn the mixed martial arts. You know, MMA is obviously a very popular sport. A lot of people like to watch it. And I always thought that more people would practice it and train it if there were more opportunities to do so in a way that, that more closely resembled the way um, that folks are able to train Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And so one of the, the, the incredible things about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is that if you look at you know, the average age of participants, it's much older than some of the other arts. You know, we're, you know like most of my students, um, as, a, as an example, most of them are in their 30s and, and 40s, I would say, which you, know, you, you don't observe in some of the other, um, other arts, and you certainly don't observe it specifically in mixed martial arts academies. But these are the same folks who 
do enjoy watching MMA. And so I always thought, well, if there were an oppor- if there were opportunities for these folks to train MMA the way they would train jiu-jitsu, I think the participation rate would go up. And so far, that's exactly what we found. We haven't been open for very long, but um, the MMA class that we teach here was definitely the one that made me the most nervous in terms of, you know, well, how will this one catch on? Will people, you know, will people be too afraid to try it? Will they Will they try it and then find it's too hard? And it's actually become one of our most popular classes because the the real life application is so clear and and people get to actually play MMA in that sense where, um, you know, like with other sports, people enjoy watching it, but they also enjoy participating in it. MMA is, is somewhat unique in that that really just isn't the case. People aren't able to play MMA in that sense. And and in some sense, it's not really a, a sport that can be played, but it is certainly one that can be trained and experienced in a way I've always felt um, that doesn't um, necessarily uh, force you to, to receive damage and such and not be able to practice it safely. So the way mixed martial arts is taught writ large, like if I go to a MMA Academy or an MMA school is it's run more like a football practice where they're not going to teach me football. We're running through the drills and we're just doing football practice, right? They're assuming I'm already coming in knowing how to play football and you didn't want to do something like that. You wanted something where it's not assumed that you already know all the facets of MMA. You're going to teach them a lot of that. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. And I, and I don't assume that they know all the facets of MMA because I know that they don't, and I know that most people don't. Um, I'd be lying if I said I understood all of the facets of MMA um, in a crystal clear sense. It's it's a sport that's ever evolving, ever adapting, um, and, and to to think that one would come in with just so much prior knowledge that they would already understand this, I, I just don't think is realistic. Um, on top of that, the way I think a lot of MMA academies are currently run is that it's it's not that the the students aren't learning or the competitors aren't learning, but their their process of learning is largely uh, through indirect means rather than direct means. So rather than saying, "Hey, this is the concept we're focusing on today, and these are the skills that we're going to be practicing, and this is you know the relevance to this given situation," it's let's do this drill. That's that's you know highly intense and isn't particularly focused around one thing. But through this drill, I'm hoping that the students will walk away having also now learned this concept. That to me, I mean, there are times where we can do this if we're like you know focusing on you know increasing your cardiovascular capabilities, for instance. We can do this while also having an indirect means behind it, but. To not also have a class in which you're directly teaching these skills, to me, is a mistake. Can you give an example of such means, the indirect learning as opposed to direct learning? Sure. So, for instance, uh, at a lot of MMA academies, uh, there are drills where people do, for instance, um, you know, we're going to work up against the wall or up against the fence, and we're both going to fight for takedowns and we can mix in strikes. And through those drills, you'll find oh, if I, if I strike to the head, perhaps it'll open up the potential for an underhook. And through this underhook, I'll have better, you know, greater ability to get to the hips and such. But what is missing in those sequences is an actual direct lesson of, okay, we're going to get an underhook pin up against the fence. We're going to secure the wrist. I'm then going to switch my, my you know, 
my hand grip on the wrist to pinning the wrist with my shoulder, which will allow me to lower my body and go for, um, you know, to scare a double leg takedown. And if their legs spread open on the double leg takedown, here's how and why we're going to switch off to the single leg takedown. Now, people learn some of these things through these, these drilling scenarios, but if it's only a process of indirect learning, I feel there are a lot of steps that, that you know, some, you know, of, of much greater importance than others that are going to be lost there because they weren't actually taught those steps. So it's kind of like when you're trying to teach someone how to write, you can give them a stream of consciousness kind of assignment where you're free writing, right? And like you said, with certain drills where you don't tell them what it's about, maybe it's for cardio, it can be appropriate. Whereas this, you're giving them the thesis, you're giving them an assignment. And so you want them to learn certain specific things from this assignment. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I think thesis um, is an accurate word there. So I'll give you an example of a recent um, lesson we went over. We, you know, we've been spending a lot of time lately actually working this exact scenario up against the wall or up against the fence in, uh, in MMA context. Um, we've been working some transitions specifically from double leg to single leg. And the thesis there is that uh, my ability to complete a double leg takedown will benefit from my ability to actually lock my hands together. Um, you know, as is in the case of most double legs, you know, there are a lot of double legs where we don't lock our hands together. But if I'm afforded the ability to do so, it almost exclusively benefits me. And so if I can start through this thesis and say, all right, having my hands locked together on double leg is going to benefit me. So that's going to be my first goal. Okay, well, what happens when I get my hands locked together? How does my partner counter? Well, they, they try to separate their legs in order to, to break my grip. Okay, and it, and it works and it works pretty well. But what does that give me? What does that afford me? Well, one of the things that it gives me is that their legs, which were previously right underneath them, are no longer underneath them because they're, um, they've expanded beyond the width of their hips in order to break my grip. Well, because they don't have a leg underneath them anymore, if I now switch off to a single leg and I lift one of these legs, their balance is going to be immediately disrupted because they don't have a leg underneath them. So things like this where, you know, anyone can drill double leg to single leg, but why are we drilling double leg to single leg? Why is that particular sequence so important? Why is it so powerful? And in illuminating these concepts, my hope is that my students in a different situation then can say, okay. I know I want to lock my hands together because I know this is the response it's likely to get. Now, we previously did it up against a wall, but what about on the ground? What about out in open space? Um, now that they have this understanding of these concepts, um, you know, it's, I, I think the lesson will, you know, will benefit them a lot more. It actually makes me think of our global pollution waste problem. I relate a lot of things to martial arts because that's how I think about everything. And it actually gives me more clarity. So here's what I mean. The way that it's been presented to us to reduce waste is by recycling, right? So we've kind of taught it in an unorganized way. We're leaving it to chance for people to figure it out. And some people, maybe they do figure it out, but most people will just focus on recycling. And I don't know if you know about the three R's, but it's reduce, reuse, recycle, but that's not an arbitrary order it's actually in order of importance. So the most important thing that you were supposed to get out of that is reduce. Whereas for most of us, we probably put that as the last thing and we focus most on recycling. And that happens because you left it to chance. There was no direct 
explicit explanation. We kind of learned it through the free market of ideas, right? Through the open market of ideas, we were supposed to get to the most effective, optimal thing. And sometimes we just actually explicitly need to be told, what are we supposed to be paying attention to? What should we be doing? And in this instance is reducing. Your instance with takedowns, who knows what lessons they'll get on their own. Right. So you as the instructor have to tell them where to focus. You have to put the highlighter on the lesson. Like, okay, there's a bunch of stuff that you'll be doing in this. You'll be doing a lot of moves. Here are the areas that are most important and the order of importance. Yeah, I think that's right. So when we look at the term MMA, it's mixed martial arts. Now you could take that to mean a lot of different things, right? So what's your thesis of MMA, mixed martial arts? What does that mean to you as an instructor and how you're going to teach it? Is it just like an equal amount of mixing of all things? You take turns wrestling and then you take a turn doing jiu-jitsu. What is your thesis about MMA? What does it mean? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So, you know, obviously historically mixed martial arts was supposed to be this test between different arts, right? You know, what happens when, you know, karate is faced off against Brazilian jiu-jitsu or, you know, um, and then over time, it became this, this blend of these different arts. Not only do I train karate, but I also train Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Um, and then as, as the sport has progressed even further, it's now basically involved into one singular art that just encompasses the lessons of all the arts. I think that's currently where we are. And I think that's, you know, mainly what guides our approach here. Now we also train the arts individually because, um, you know, it's, it, this is not a, a big part of our academy, a big idea behind the academy anyway, is that we could cater to people with much different interests. So if this were a mixed martial arts academy who, uh, and our singular um, goal was just to produce mixed martial arts athletes, I would set up the school much differently than I have. Wait, how would it be different then? It would basically, I think most of our classes, if not all of our classes would be, would closely resemble what the MMA class is. Wherein, even if we did, let's say I was teaching, you know, uh, some sort of triangle, you know, from Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, it would be in an MMA context. It would be taught specifically addressing the problems of strikes, the problems of pins, the problems of fatigue. But what I currently do in our Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu class is I teach Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu uh, techniques for for really two purposes, primarily for the sport and practice of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, um, and then for you know the application for street self-defense, uh, as well as an MMA context. But the focus isn't an MMA context. The focus is a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu context, and that's because a lot of my students are here. and And this is this is something else that that I'm proud to say we really cater to is that. A lot of my students train Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because it's fun. They don't train it because they want to be an MMA athlete. A lot of them don't train it because they're particularly concerned with how it would apply to street self-defense. They like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And to them, it's a game. It's a sport, just like a lot of people play baseball because baseball is fun. And I don't, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. That's not the foremost reason why I started training Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or why I continue to train Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. But that's irrelevant. Why they came through the door has nothing to do with why I came through the door. And I think that's something that's lost on a lot of instructors where, you know, let, let's talk about the word potential for a minute. I was told, you know, when I was younger uh, through, through some coaches that I had potential. 
And as, as you know, as an older person now, I look back and I, I wonder what they meant by that. To me, I think that meant you have potential to succeed in this sport, frankly, in a way that would reflect positively on them. I think that's what they meant. Um, but potential, I think, should be defined by the students, you know, because they came in to fulfill something, some need or some want that they determined. I didn't determine that. And I don't think I have the right to determine that for them. And so if their goal for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is to to make some sort of gains in in their social life where now they're meeting new people, um, they're a little more comfortable socializing, it gets them out of the house, and they really have no interest in the art whatsoever, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think if we provide a fun and positive experience for them in a way... And I'm and I'm still doing my job by still actually teaching them Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu techniques the uh, the way I feel they should be taught. Then I see that as me doing my job. It doesn't matter to me why they came in here. I I, I should restate that. It's not that it doesn't matter to me. Um, I'm I'm very open to to having you know a, a wide range of answers in terms of why they came through the door, and so. You know, this reflects a lot, I feel, in the way that I run my classes in that if you and Paul were in here training a class and I felt that you could have been training harder and that you would have even gotten better results if you trained harder. But I feel that it's clear to me that you don't particularly want to train harder today. That's fine. If you're enjoying yourself, then I feel that I'm doing my job. Now, for an MMA athlete like my my athlete Savannah, Okay, well, we have some different considerations there. If she is signing her name to say that she's going to fight in a cage and I, as her coach, am responsible for keeping her safe, well, then I'm going to teach her in a much different way than I would teach hobbyists. Um, but I, I I, think it's very important to, to not only me, but to all of our instructors here that we never lose sight of the fact that different people are going to come in with, with different goals. And those are their goals, not ours. I think when instructors start trying to dictate your want or why you're training is when it starts getting really creepy. And martial arts schools, they all open up pure, like, oh, it's a passion project and everybody's excited and they have a big grand opening. But once they start doing that is when the school starts getting really creepy. And a lot of schools do end up getting really creepy. And what I mean by creepy, meaning it starts to get cultish. I absolutely agree. And I've trained in a lot of those schools. So you talked about the blending of different martial arts, right? But let's say it's a pie chart. Is an equal blending of everything or does your school have an emphasis, right? Because there are certain schools where they blend it all, but they have an emphasis on Muay Thai. And there's some other schools where they blend it all, but they have an emphasis on Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or they have an emphasis on wrestling. Do you have an emphasis in your school? And do you think MMA schools should have an emphasis? It's a great question. For our particular school, um, I would definitely say our emphasis uh, falls in the following order. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, Muay Thai, wrestling, MMA. Um, and that is, that is, you know, largely by design in terms of, uh, you know, gauging what I felt most people would want. You know, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is currently really, really popular. A lot of people, you know, really enjoy training it. Um, Muay Thai, a little less so, but still somewhat popular. Wrestling, um, there just aren't a lot of programs for adults to even learn wrestling. So it's 
you know, it doesn't quite have the same demand as some of the other arts. And then MMA, like I had mentioned before, while it's a very popular sport, I think a lot of people do have their reservations about practicing it as a hobbyist. And so it was really somewhat experimental and just having the one class per week to start. Um, but given the response, I think we'll likely add in the future. Now, how that translates to actual like the MMA class itself, and, and is that one skewed in one direction or the other? I would say that one is predominantly focused around wrestling. Why is it predominantly around wrestling? Especially because I think even you probably identify more as a Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner, right? Especially like when you train Brazilian jiu-jitsu, even if you've trained all these different arts, it becomes like a point of pride. You're like, that's my art, right? Even yeah. if you learn mixed martial arts or other stuff. So that says something a lot about wrestling if you're willing to put that pride aside to put that on the forefront. So why is that at the forefront? So for a few reasons. Uh, for starters, because we have more than enough opportunities to train Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu here. And so if folks are going to do this MMA class to spend, let's say, 70% of it just also still doing Jiu-Jitsu, to me would be not boring necessarily, but um, perhaps a wasted opportunity to focus on something else. Um, and now with, with the sport of MMA, wrestling to me is such a foundational part of it that not not just wrestling itself but wrestling for mma i see as as a unique thing and so to me when i think of mma you know, shoot boxing or you know the interface between striking and grappling to me is really at the core of what mma is so i think that's why uh, that it's skewed in that direction you said wrestling is foundational so what does that mean yeah, so I guess what I mean by that is is kind of the you know same thing you'll you'll hear a lot of folks recite about how you know um, being able to control where the fight takes place and and I think that you know that is hugely important and I think that's quite right you know for myself depending on the skills of my opponent I might choose to strike I might choose to to take it to the ground. But that choice, the idea of a choice is predicated around the idea that I could take it to the ground or I could stop the fight from going to the ground. And that comes first and foremost from wrestling. So some of these different martial arts are more like the choices, but the ability to even have a choice comes from wrestling. So you need to give yourself the ability to have choices first before you can apply any of these choices. I think that's really well stated. I think that's quite right. Yeah. To go back to Sam's question from before, do you think schools should have a theme that they focus on? Um, especially given like some of the considerations I had made, like I said, were really predicated around, you know, well, what does the participation rate look like in terms of these different classes, knowing that it's heavily skewed toward Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? Well, these are the folks who should probably be interested in in understanding how they could even give themselves the opportunity to use their Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu if they if they were, you know tasked with having to do so in a real life scenario. Um, but, you know, let's say our school were more of a, a competitive MMA school, then I don't know necessarily that there has to be a focus. I, I think part of that would definitely depend also on the capabilities of your instructors. And so, you know, if I were not confident in my wrestling, well, then it'd be probably somewhat difficult to, you know, predicate our MMA program around wrestling and such. I think, um, my background is, is somewhat unique in that I didn't, I didn't start off wrestling. You know, I didn't wrestle in high school. I didn't, I didn't wrestle in school whatsoever. In fact, I've never once competed in a strictly wrestling context for wrestling. Um, and yet I have found a way to be successful in 
taking you know otherwise more qualified wrestlers to the ground and controlling them while stopping them from doing so and so i felt you know you know through these indirect lessons that i learned over time and had to kind of find out on my own um you know i benefited from you know, growing up in the midwest where um just so many people participated in wrestling and so the mma academy that i trained at just you know so frequently had experienced wrestlers and so i quickly had to learn all right, well, what are they trying to do and how can I stop them from doing it? You know, I certainly knew double legs and single legs. I knew some wrestling for jiu-jitsu and for MMA, but um, it was really when we got a cage at our academy that I learned the importance of understanding how to wrestle, not just in general, but wrestle along the fence or wrestle up against a wall, which to me is is almost a completely different art in itself. And I I found such success in that particular arena and it was really then that I realized there are a lot of shortcuts that can be made for for understanding how to wrestle in an MMA context without having to learn an entire breadth of wrestling uh, as so many wrestlers do in a sporting context. So when you say wrestling for MMA, is that just about learning how to wrestle against the fence or is there more to it than that? No, there's certainly a lot more to it. So um you know, going back to this interface between striking and grappling, you know, how does one use one's strikes to create opportunities to take one's opponent to the ground? Um, you know, how does one use one's opponent's strikes as a way to create opportunities to take the fight to the ground, etc. Um, but so when I say wrestling for MMA, what I mean specifically is wrestling with the goals of MMA in mind. So I'm not wrestling to secure a, a pin in the the you know, the sporting context of, of a pin that would end the match. And I'm not doing so necessarily in consideration of the points that are awarded in wrestling, but rather, how do I use my wrestling first and foremost to, to take my opponent down and secure pins in, in an overall MMA or Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu context in which I mean to, you know, facilitate entrance into submissions or to create striking opportunities. And then as well, how do I do these things with the consideration of my opponent can strike me? My opponent can throw a knee strike to my head while I'm looking for a takedown. Even after I, you know, take my opponent down, you know, they're looking not necessarily to move to their stomach right away, but they might, you know, so consideration of strangles along the way, guillotines and such. The, you know, the list of considerations is just so much longer, I feel, than it would be in a purely wrestling context. Um, that when I say wrestling for MMA, this is what I mean. Do you focus a lot on writing positions by any chance? We do. We do. Um, we do a lot uh, in terms of, of, you know, when I say pinning for an MMA context, that's more or less what I mean is, is keeping my opponent secured to the floor in a way that they cannot just reverse position. They can't, you know, set up meaningful offense um, and they can't just get back to their feet. And so riding positions are, are hugely important for this. So if you're not familiar with wrestling and you don't know what writing is but you know a little bit about brazilian jiu-jitsu or you've seen mma fights i guess the closest thing you can compare it to is half guard it's not necessarily just half guard but riding by sitting at least on one of their appendages to hold them down you could consider that kind of the thesis of writing also what's different about mma wrestling is in collegiate wrestling you can't lock hands and so that changes everything so do you then, because that's now allowed in MMA, focus a lot more of your takedowns and approaches to clinch and stuff around locking your hands if you can have it or systems to get to locking your hands? Absolutely. So 
Um, that's that's a, a really good point, and that's exactly what I mean when I talk about wrestling for MMA, wrestling for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, is also keeping in mind the rules of these sports rather than the rules of wrestling. And so locked hands are are one of those things. It's We don't allow res, uh, locked hands in wrestling because it's such a huge advantage that it, it slows down the sport because if you're able to lock hands, you can really stifle movement effectively. So then for an MMA and street self-defense in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu context, to observe that rule and say, okay, we're going to do this position, but we're not going to lock our hands to me would be a, a huge mistake because it just doesn't offer any benefits. That's one of the problems with people who transition from collegiate wrestling into MMA, I think, is they had that bias. They're such traditionalists. Even though they're allowed to lock their hands and they're aware of it, they didn't think they needed to bother learning how to do it or even doing it because they're like, that's not pure wrestling. That's not a real way. That's almost like a cheat or not something appropriate so they don't do it i remember a lot of times when they're teaching takedowns in a brazilian jiu-jitsu academy that i've been to or when i've taken an mma class a lot of the instructors would not teach takedowns with the hands class because that's not the right quote-unquote way to do it but it's allowed in mma and it's also allowed in brazilian jiu-jitsu and it's so much more effective so why wouldn't you do that it's a very good observation that you just had, and I think that's quite right. So I teach a system of double legs, for instance, off of a jab that it's you know that we're going to alter depending on our partner's response, and it always starts with locked hands, because if we can get locked hands, we should get locked hands. However, a good wrestler is going to use their hips in a way that might not allow us to lock our hands. So it's important to understand that that will very often be the case. And to have a system of attacks designed for still completing your takedown, even when you cannot lock your hands, is very important. But to do so in a way that then omits you know, the consideration of, well, what, what can you do? What should you do if you can lock your hands would be a critical error. And so my system of double legs always starts with with locking hands because if you can get that opportunity you should use it but there's a whole system of follow-ups depending on um, what your opponent does in a context where you are unable to do so you're still very early in the school so a lot of this is still going to be theoretical right because you haven't gotten into like six months down the line curriculum but in coming up with your school and the mma class how did you derive your curriculum and here's what i mean if it's Muay Thai or Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, as an instructor, you could put your own style into it and put your own systems into it. But there is still an unspoken curriculum given to you, which is at the beginning of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is mostly about defense, right? It's learning how to survive. So it's already built out for you. Muay Thai might have its own defenses, but maybe it's still more offensive oriented, right? Maybe boxing starts with jab rather than learning how to block or parry first, right? So when you're considering how to create a MMA curriculum, how do you know what you're supposed to do at the beginning? What do you build upon? Because I don't know, is it going to be built like jujitsu on hip escapes first <laughs> and bump and roll or what? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And so that was really an exciting project for me when I started designing our curriculum of answering that exact question, where to begin. And, and to me, the answer is, is still somewhat clear in that it should, it should start with stance. Okay. Cause that's going to be the first thing that changes in terms of applying, um, any of your, you know, whether it's applying your Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for MMA, applying your boxing for MMA, your Muay Thai, is it's going to start with stance. Well, what does our MMA stance look like? And there's no one clear answer, but there are clear problems that you should consider 
when starting to put together your stance. So I need to be mobile. I need to be able to respond in a way that would stop takedowns. I need to respond in a way that would initiate takedowns. I need to be able to initiate strikes, stop strikes, um, pin my opponent, not just on the ground, but pin them up against the fence. And so you really need to think about all these things when you're thinking of, well, what kind of stance is going to be most effective? And so there's certainly still a lot of, um, there's still a lot of room for the students to kind of move around in a way that they're most comfortable with, but they need to understand at least these considerations. And so I feel it's my job to illuminate these considerations for them. And at which point, um, they find a way that's, that, you know, suits them most comfortably. Um, now in terms of moving beyond that, um, you know, we start to talk about distance. We start to talk about head position, things like this. Of So to me, you know, one of the, the foundations of shootbox is going to be head position and, and just level changing. And so if I, if I remember correctly, our first day of MMA here was really about stance, footwork, and level changing. And so, you know, what kind of distance is appropriate in these, in these contexts, you know, um, what kind of footwork is going to allow me to initiate takedowns while also, you know, avoiding takedowns and stopping takedowns and then, um, how to address level changing. So, you know, if I'm roughly head, you know, head to head with my opponent in terms of height, our head position is roughly the same. Well, what happens when they level change? Um, you know, what happens to my opportunities to strike? What happens to my chances of stopping a takedown? And then how to, you know, address these things. I think a lot of times in MMA, stance and footwork is left completely to you initially, unless you later on, I don't know, hire a private boxing coach or a private Muay Thai coach, then you might adopt some of their insight. But at the beginning, it's just like, however you stand is however you stand. And then, okay, you got that. Okay, now let's move on to some drills off of that. So what are your considerations then of the stance and the footwork? Let's first start with the stance. Is it like going to be for MMA, like more long and bladed, like a boxing stance? Is it going to be more squared up like a traditional Muay Thai stance? What is your ideal stance? So stance is one of those things to me. If we, if we look at like the current state of MMA, let's say we just look at the list of champions. Um, what we'll notice about these champions, different stances is that they look pretty different from one another. That to me suggests that there is not one necessary stance that you need in order to be successful. And so with that insight in mind, to me, I see it more of my job, not so much to tell students how to stand, but to show different examples of stance and explain the, the pros and cons of each stance. You know, so if I'm in a more bladed stance, you know, what are some of the drawbacks of this? Well, it'd be a little difficult to address, um, you know, round kicks on my lead side. Okay, well, what is, how does it benefit? Well, it helps me allow in and out a little more quickly than I would in a more squared up stance. And so as long as students are aware of these considerations, um, I leave it, you know, somewhat up to them. Now, again, this is, you know, the way I approach, you know, Savannah's career would be different than, you know, my students who are more, you know, uh, hobbyists. Because um, part of it, too, is I, I talked about this. I'm trying, I hope I didn't talk about this on one of a previous episode here, but um, I talked about this with someone. And this is something I actually use in my in my my coaches training. So I actually do a, a little coaching program with my instructors here in which, you know, I, I talk to them about some of the goals of, of our program, um, my philosophy between, you know, behind a lot of things I do, and then some tips that I, that I you know, hope that will be helpful for them. And I, there's a particular story that I, that I like to tell that came from a private lesson that I did with a student. So 
um, a student had asked to do a private lesson with me on uh, on Kimuras. Um, they, you know, they wanted to improve their Kimura game, and you know, so we did this private lesson. I, you know, I showed them a Kimura to back take, some sort of you know uh, fundamental sequence that would, you know, would benefit them in a re- in a really good way, limit their opponent's options. That I felt was you know a really sound attack, and I thought they should learn. And the student told me, "All right, like that's cool. Let me show you the one that I like to do." And they showed me this Kimura to arm lock that was. You know, it was not a bad attack, but in my eyes, maybe a less effective attack. And for this student's particular game, I thought, mm, okay, sure. I, I don't know that this should be your primary attack from this position. And I asked them, okay, why do you, you know, or I think what I asked them first was, do you have success with this attack? And they said, well, not really. I said, all right, well, then why do you do it? And you know what he told me? Because I like it. And that was a really important lesson for me as an instructor because I realized he was right. He should do that technique because he enjoyed doing that technique. He didn't ask to do a private lesson with me necessarily because he wanted to improve his Kimura game so much that he would then you know, win these tournaments and have a professional career. He liked doing Kimuras and he wanted to learn more Kimuras so he can do more of them. And the particular one that he did, while at that time was not that effective for him, he really enjoyed doing it. And so I had to pause and think to myself, well, then he should do it. You know, that's his right to do it. And so I, you know, these are some of the things that I really like to keep in mind. Now, of course, I would also see it as my job in that instance to point out, you know, if he's doing it in a way that could be better, yeah, let's, you know, let's help you do it better. Then, in fact, that's exactly what I should be doing in that situation. Um, if he's, you know, making some fundamental errors along the way, well, okay, well, let's clean those up. But to convince him that he should do my move because it's more effective, when he didn't ask me which move is more effective, I learn in that moment is maybe a mistake. That sounds like a lot of what the Machado brothers have to do with each other, because the way Higgin teaches is different from John Jock, which is different from Carlos. So if a student comes up and says, this is how I learned arm lock, then Higgin might say, I know John Jock taught you that way, but have you considered this? Uh-huh. So they can't step on each other's toes and what works for Higgin might not work for John Jock, might not work for Carlos. Yeah, exactly. And after having, and that's why, you know, having those conversations are important of like, okay, well, like, well, why do you want to do this move? Or, you know, where, you know, where does this move fit into your other goals? Or, you know, such like this, um, you know, having this open line of communication to me is just so important for instructors to have with their students. And in my personal experience, I felt like that was something that um, was missing in a lot of my experiences as a student is, you know, having this open discussion. So do you ever then in your own mind to help you as a coach categorize students? Because some coaches I've heard, especially in mixed martial arts, will be like, this student is a competitor. This student is a martial artist. This student is a fighter. So maybe that student might be a martial artist, meaning they're not necessarily training all this to win or because they want to fight professionally. This is an expression of themselves an expression of their joy this is a way to have fun that move is a move i enjoy and have fun with and i just want to express myself in that way so it's almost like it gives an instructor a way to like oh i gotta 
coach this guy differently because that's how he's coming at it as a martial artist, as somebody who's trying to express themselves. But this other person, they're a fighter. They only care about that hustle, about overcoming. And maybe for the competitor, their only goal is to win. Then for them, all they care about is efficiency. Do you apply any of those type of like mental models to how you coach or do you just go more student by student? Yeah, I certainly try to go, do it more individually, student by student. And so, you know, over time, as the academy grows, I, you know, I, I might find myself doing that more. I, I hope not. I think that would be a mistake. Um, you know, to me, I would rather the student tell me why they want to do something, right? And so now with competitors, that is different. So with with that, again, when I bring up Savannah, um, there are a lot of things I do completely different with Savannah. So uh, because we teach classes in the gi here, she'll still participate in those classes. But when she and I do live rounds in those classes, I'll usually encourage her not to use the gi for grips because it's just not going to benefit her in terms of her MMA career. And so, um, you know... But those are rare cases, right? I wouldn't, you know, I would emphasize using the gi for grips with my other students. But with this one particular student, given my knowledge of her goals, you know, I'll encourage her, well, let's maybe not spend so much. I'm not going to, you know, waste your time telling you, you know, why this cross collar grip is so important when it just has no relevance for your career. So when you were coming up with the curriculum for footwork, then where did you draw your ideas from? Did you model it a lot off of boxing or... Did you just model it off of experience? Yeah, I guess I model it mostly off of experience, but with the lessons that I've gained from both boxing as well as Muay Thai. So to me, um, in terms of, you know, we warm up actually with footwork drills every single day. Every single Muay Thai class, we warm up with footwork drills. Um, they're part of our actual warm-ups. And so um, a common warm-up we'll do is we'll... Two types of footwork I really try to distinguish between in here is um, what we call step and drag footwork and what we call natural stepping. And so with step and drag footwork, it's, you know, it's the footwork you most commonly see. I step my lead foot, I drag my rear, and this allows me to move in a way um, that I don't compromise my stance. And so I can still initiate strikes, I can still defend strikes, I can still evade strikes. Problem with that movement, it's not particularly efficient. So if my opponent runs in the opposite direction, I'm not going to step and drag down the street to try to catch up with them. So let's say, for instance, I have my opponent hurt and they back up quickly to the other side of the cage or ring. Well, this is probably not the time for step and drag footwork. This is probably the time to take a few what we'd call natural steps where my hips are more or less square. I'm moving foot over foot until I get in close proximity to them in which then I would recover my stance and then move more to step and drag footwork. Um, and so in these cases, you know, so that's one of the reasons I like to do these warmups is so they really have, they can really distinguish these things in their head. So now when I'm teaching techniques and I refer to things like step and drag or natural stepping, um, because we've warmed up with them literally every single day, you know, there's no hesitation. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. And the same thing when we incorporate pendulum stepping where we, you know, step one foot, you know, laterally into the other to replace it essentially. So, you know, shuffling your feet as it were. Um, so then let's say I'm teaching a single leg technique and, you know, you bring the leg in front of the chest and then we would shuffle our feet forward and kick out the other leg, something like this. Um, I really try to stay specific with uh, the terms that I use. Um, and so we could communicate these things effectively. What's the next area of study? Yeah. So in terms of like a striking class, I would say the very next area of study would be actually initiating strikes. 
you know, some folks might start with defense to me and even learning how to do the defense, you have to have some understanding of the strike. You can't, you know, it, it, I shouldn't say you can't, but your ability to understand how to, how to, you know, parry straight punches um, is going to depend somewhat on your understanding of what a straight punch is, right? And the goals of a straight punch and why moving that punch off the center line is going to benefit you, um, which then, you know, might require a little bit of footwork as well, right? We're going to take an outside step. We're going to guide the the you know the 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 strike past us and such like this so basically uh stance footwork strikes defenses and i always found that that's what's so different about striking versus brazilian jiu-jitsu it makes total sense to learn actually offense first in striking whether it's boxing or muay thai to understand the goals to learn how to defend against it because like something like parry you can't teach that unless you even understand the timing of how a punch is going to come to you. Same thing with a block. But in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, before I even learn how to choke, it actually makes more sense to learn how to defend a choke. And that'll make me better at applying the choke. That's always been kind of like a weird thing between Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and the striking arts. And I could see how when somebody's trying to put together a mixed martial arts curriculum, if they haven't noticed that yet, they could just kind of mix it all up and maybe approach those things the wrong way. How did you blend the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu teaching then with MMA when they seem kind of opposite to each other? Yeah, so for me, uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is, is unique in that, you know, the way Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is commonly taught starts basically in a position where you're already at a big disadvantage. So it generally starts in the guard. Right. Our, you know, so I actually I actually gave someone an introductory lesson in jiu-jitsu this morning, and that's exactly where we started. Um, and this particular person was mostly interested in jiu-jitsu for self-defense. And so it starts with, you know, um, you know, illustrating a, a scenario in which self-defense would be required. So I'm on my back, you're on top. Holy smokes, what do I do from this position? Whereas boxing or Muay Thai would start in a somewhat neutral position. You're both on the feet. You're both capable of initiating strikes and defending strikes. So Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I think it's kind of has been decided for us in that regard where, I mean, we can think, especially if we're in a pure sporting context um, or, or just practicing the art, you know, you can teach Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu starting where both people are on their knees, right? That's where, you know, a lot of times in, in class, you might find yourself if you're training at a academy, you start on the knees. Um, but that would have almost no relevance whatsoever to a self-defense scenario or an MMA context. And so that would be wasted, right? Um, so with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, it's kind of been decided for us that, you know, it for so long has been taught this way for one. And two, really makes a lot of sense to start from bottom position because to me, that's that's the magic of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. That's the true gift of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is showing people how to be an effective martial artist from what seems like an inherently really disadvantageous position. Now, if a student, and I can imagine somebody eventually asking you if they haven't already, who are the ideal people I should watch? Are there any certain fighters that you think are the ideal exemplifications of MMA? That's a great question. Um, certainly as a complete mixed martial artist, someone who's um, very capable in all facets of MMA, to me, there's no greater example than George St. Pierre. Um, you know, not only one of the most successful mixed martial arts competitors, um, but demonstrated, uh, you know, a, a sufficient mastery of, of many different facets of mixed martial arts. Um, then we could look at different examples of, you know, 
this element of mixed martial arts for MMA. You know, so I would think, for instance, of maybe um, uh, Habib for wrestling for MMA. Uh, Connor striking for MMA to me is is one of the most effective forms of striking for MMA because it addresses a lot of these different MMA considerations. So a lot of what Connor does, for instance, might be considered wrong by you know from the standpoint of striking purist right you know he oh he holds his hands low his chin is up high he does this that and the other um but it's you know uh it's not surprising to me how effective he's been with his striking in mma because to me it is perfectly suited for an mma context before the school opened and you were thinking about your mma curriculum were there also some fighters you watched to try to model it or give you inspiration on how to come up with a curriculum uh, not necessarily. And, and my curriculum certainly evolves over time. And so usually, um, you, you know, I've, I've been involved in MMA for a very long time. But in terms of actually scheduling what's going to be taught on these days, I'll usually do it just a couple months in advance, you know, so I don't have, for instance, next year's curriculum written or anything. Um, and so this will continue to evolve over time as, as MMA evolves over time. You know, I might, you know, see a fighter do something that, that'll inspire, you know, an investigation into this new area of MMA, um, you know, which certainly happened a couple of years ago, um, as like Ben Askren and, and Habib started, you know, really being just incredibly effective with, um, gripping their opponent's wrists and such. And so I realized, wow, this is not something I'd really you know, done too much in my MMA experience, I should really look into this. And, you know, so as things like that happen, I'll start to kind of integrate those into our program. Um, but the program itself really does have a core underneath it as well in terms of, for instance, um, you know, uh, the interface between striking and grappling and in a standing context and a grounded context up against the wall and so on and so forth. So do you focus then more, like you said, on the here's different ways to apply striking ground against the wall in open range. Do you do it like that? Or do you approach it by ranges where it's like, okay, today we're working on distance striking only. Now we're closer today. We're working on boxing skills because a lot of coaches have done that. And I think some of the newer coaches are moving away from it, but this idea of fighting MMA in these different ranges rather than looking at all the different ways that striking can be applied in all these different situations or takedowns in all these different situations. I had an instructor at one point who he told me that my Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was good, but that it lacked fundamentals. And that comment always stuck with me because I, I didn't like it. And I, and I, I particularly didn't like it because I always prided myself on approaching Jiu-Jitsu in a way that was not uh, revolving around reflexes or athleticism or strength, um, which is easy enough to do because I didn't have, I wasn't the strongest, I wasn't the fastest. And so, um, you know, I, I didn't really know what he meant by that because I thought, you know, that's, that's just not re representative of my Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu at all. And over time, I learned that he was right in a sense. And what that sense was, is that I was not that aware of some of the core principles that they really shouldn't change much depending on context. There are a lot of things that change depending on context, but some things don't. And those I think are what we should refer to as fundamentals. And so for instance, and, and this isn't an always or never thing either. So some of the things that I'm about to point out now in some contexts would change, but by and large they wouldn't. So in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, one of those core principles would be elbow position. 
there are very few circumstances in which moving your elbow away from your body would benefit you. Um, it not only uh, you know makes you inherently weaker, but it opens up potential for submissions if we're talking about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Therefore, one of the fundamental principles behind Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is that you should try to keep your elbows close. You should keep your elbows close to your body. And there is a set of principles like that for, for many of the arts that, um, that I feel the more I can reinforce those, the more I can allow the martial artist to be an artist, you know? And so, you know, as, as John Danaher refers to, was he, you know, refer to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as the art and science of control that leads to submission. Well, we the, the science of it is somewhat clear, you know, it's, it's particularly reflected in his teaching. Um, but the art to me is how based upon these principles, based upon your understanding of fundamentals, you choose to do things, you make choices, but those choices still funnel through your understanding of, of fundamentals. So instead of the ranges being the fundamentals, it's more like the fundamentals are those principles, regardless of the position or the phase that remains true. And those are the core building blocks that you have to build off of. Yeah, I think that's right. You shouldn't have different fundamentals from striking range versus clinching range versus Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu versus wrestling. Right. To me, those are the things that don't change, you know? So to me, there isn't a striking context in which we would try to raise our chin in the air because that's one of the fundamentals is keeping our chin tucked. There are situations where unconsciously you're going to do that, but there aren't situations that would call for you to choose to do that. And that to me is not only this, the distinction of this, the science versus the art, but the fundamentals from the choices. So fundamentals are kind of more hard rules. And then everything else outside the fundamentals, you have leeway in the art, the expressive side, the things you could decide on your own. Yeah, I think that's right. And so, you know, back to talking about striking, for instance, there are very few contexts in which we would choose to go from a staggered stance to a squared stance. Because really there aren't a lot of situations in which that would benefit us. Now, there are some times where we're forced to do that if I'm backed up against the fence or I'm caught in between natural stepping, things like that. But there really aren't a lot of contexts, um, at least prior to making a grip. So like a clinch would be an example, in which case we might square up a little bit. Um, but outside of a grip, there really aren't a lot of situations in which, you know, um, the fundamentals would call for us to square up our stance. Now, there are times where, you know, martial artists will transgress fundamentals. And a lot of times they do it to encourage their opponent to try to take advantage of the very fact that they've transgressed these fundamentals. So, you know, Anderson Silva comes to mind where he might square up his stance uh, along the fence. He might raise his chin in the air. He might put his hands down. He is actively transgressing these fundamentals because he knows his opponents will be made aware of it. And they'll say, hey, this is out of place. Here's my opportunity to strike. He's doing that because he wants his opponents to strike. Now, is your goal with your school to create future MMA fighters, professional MMA fighters, or is it more like you want to create an environment where all kinds of people can just come and learn MMA, not necessarily to compete? It is absolutely the latter. So it is very much my goal to create um, to create a space that's welcoming for everybody to, to come in here and feel comfortable 
trying their hand at something that interests them, trying their hand at something perhaps they didn't think they ever would be interested in, um, and to have you know a safe and positive outlet um, for them to go after work or for them to go after school or whatever the case, and, and to socialize with people and to have positive examples and to get exercise and to learn about nutrition. Um, these are all the things I have in mind for my school. Now, along along the road, if if, you know, uh, you know, I come into contact with athletes who decide that they want to pursue an MMA career, well, then we'll cross that bridge when we get there. But that is far from my primary goal. That's interesting because when you compare this to a lot of other sports where after, let's say, high school, there's nowhere for them to get a high level understanding of the sport. So if you played high school football or basketball afterwards, unless you're lucky enough to be selected to become a collegiate athlete. Your understanding of football is limited to what you see in ESPN or the NFL analysis. So for them, for at least here, it's cool because you get to get that high level of understanding of fighting and martial arts, but you don't have to have the credential say of, oh, well, you're not a pro, then you can't get this knowledge. Right. And I, I think you're absolutely right about that. And that was one of one of the absolute biggest uh, motivating factors behind our academy is exactly that insight that there are very few. So and to me, this is this is a lesson that Brazilian Jiu Jitsu has taught all of us is that adults want to be active too. adults want to learn new skills too, um, particularly when it comes to martial arts is, you know, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, like I'd mentioned, um, the average age is much older than some of one, some of the other martial arts, and certainly much older than a lot of sports. Um, and yet, you know, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu has taught us all that these people are still interested in, in having an active lifestyle and learning something and challenging themselves and just having a positive outlet in which to socialize with other adults. And so I learned this pretty early on as, as a Brazilian Jiu Jitsu instructor when I was like 22 years old. And almost all of my students were older than me. And it really surprised me in the beginning. I didn't expect that. And I realized how much it meant to them to have somewhere to come to socialize with other people and to learn and to challenge themselves and to fail at things, but then get better the next week. And I felt, you know, we have a million after school programs in this country for, you know, we don't have enough, but we do have a lot of them for, you know, kids to, you know, to have outlets for after school, like I said, and just recreational activities. We really don't do this for adults as much as we should. And adults need structure. Adults need encouragement. Adults need motivation as much as anybody. And so that was, you know, a, a huge surprise earlier in my instructing career is just the impact that had on adults. And that was an important lesson for me. And I take that lesson very serious now, very seriously now as an academy owner. And it's very important to me that we provide that space for not only children, but for adults. So you felt like there was a market of people that they've seen UFC and MMA and were interested in learning it, but didn't want to compete. And there was nothing that was there for them. And maybe that's a lot more people than we think. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and, so, you know, there are some other business models that have, that have kind of uh, 
capitalize on this, for instance, like kickboxing fitness, for instance, where people can, you know, someone who's in their in their 40s and works a desk job can go into a, some sort of kickboxing fitness program and then go back to work and tell their coworkers that I kickbox. That's what I do after work. I'm a kickboxer. And, you know, we as, you know, martial arts enthusiasts maybe laugh at that sometimes and feel like, well, that's not what a kickboxer is. But to them, it is. And, and they and they love that. And that's and it's it's a very uh, it has a very positive impact on their life. They're exercising and they're learning a skill. They could go anywhere. They could go do CrossFit. They can go just, you know, lift weights at a gym. But they choose to do this kickboxing fitness because not only is it really fun, but they feel really good about learning what they perceive as a skill. And so to me, I think we're, you know, we're not, uh, you know, uh, just a, a fitness focused martial arts program. We're actually interested in, in you know, really translating the arts to people and, and the skills. Um, but that insight is not lost on me that, that there are a lot of hobbyists and, and people who just enjoy doing these things recreationally because it's so much fun and because it's so fulfilling and in, you know, it feels it feels really good to acquire new knowledge. I think that's the big paradigm shift then is with Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, Muay Thai, boxing, even kickboxing. We don't think of those things as professions. There are professional versions of it, but we think of that as martial arts that you could just go learn. And if I told somebody that I kickboxed, Majority of the time, even if I train at a legitimate Muay Thai school that is not cardio oriented at all, but fight oriented, majority of the people there are not professional fighters and don't want to be. They're just training in a more realistic environment. So I guess the paradigm shift is we thought that for all the things that are within mixed martial arts, but for mixed martial arts itself, we thought of it. That's a profession, though. That's not something that you could just take a class on or that's not an art that you can go learn, whereas you're saying, no, mixed martial arts itself is also an art that can be taught and learned as its own discipline. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's quite right. I do like the name modern martial arts and fitness because much like how you talked about how a lot of times people will learn to fight as an indirect way. Mm -hmm. And when you consider the fitness approach, a lot of your classes don't have anything just fitness related. Mm -hmm. But indirectly, they get in shape, they become better they improve on a cardiovascular and anaerobic and aerobic capacity. And that's very important knowing, again, um, you know, people's reasons for coming in. A lot of people, you know, they start training Muay Thai, for instance, because they want to lose weight and they can't stand going to the gym to run on a treadmill or lift weights. Um, I myself can't really stand doing these things. I've done it forever. I continue to do it every single week, but I don't enjoy it. And so... You know, if I have to force myself to do it as as a professional martial martial artist, um, you know, how willing is you know, let's say the average person who kind of cares about fitness, you know, how willing are they going to be to do this? You know, we you know we have the trope of the you know the people who they make their New Year's resolution, they're going to get a gym membership, they go on January first, and they never go again because it's it's not that fun, and not only is it not that fun for a lot of people, it's not fulfilling. They're not actually, other than, you know, hopefully seeing some positive fitness results, they're not learning something while they're there. They're not developing mastery over something while they're there. They're not being recognized for their mastery, um, such as in a promotion in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or such. Um, and so, you know, some of these things are less, you know, people are less successful sometimes staying with these things because of it. And so if you can, you know, 
as you guys know, have you know, you know longtime martial artists, um, when you're doing five minutes of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu against a, a skilled opponent, that's it's pretty taxing on the body. Um, when you're doing one minute up against the wall trying to take someone down and they're doing everything they can to resist, there's your cardio for the day. It's it's not an easy job. And so, um, you know, part of this modern approach to this fitness is understanding that some of our current approaches to fitness haven't resulted in widespread results because people fail to stick with them. They fail to you know continue to be motivated to do these. And so having a different approach to fitness as well as martial arts is is part of our um, part of our approach here. So it sounds like with modern martial arts, especially the more combative ones, the more fight realistic ones, even those two, it's okay to have fun and they can be fun also. We shouldn't have to just do it because we want to go just beat the hell out of somebody or to defend ourselves from being beaten. It's okay to have fun. You're almost like giving permission for people to have fun, which sounds odd, but sometimes people need to be told that. Absolutely. And there are some of the most talented fighters on earth are this way. I've had the good fortune of of training with uh, Gary Tone in a bit, who's extremely accomplished uh, jiu-jitsu competitor as well as now MMA competitor. And every time I've trained with Gary, uh, he acts like a maniac the whole time. We, you know, we were drilling techniques one time and he kept making these weird sounds. And I was like, what are you doing? And he said, well, Jiu-jitsu is like the only martial art that doesn't have sound effects. And I think that's bogus. So I make sound effects like this is this is where his mind is. And he's, you know, arguably one of the most successful competitors of all time. So it's more than okay to have fun and people should have fun. You know, it's how are you going to stick with something if you don't enjoy it? And so um, perhaps the 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 single core guiding principle behind my teaching approach is that we all understand that the more you train, the better you're likely to get. But what we sometimes fail to remember is that the more you enjoy training, the more likely you are to continue training. So to me, you know, um, there's a pretty clear indirect correlation there between the more you enjoy training, the better you're probably going to get because you're going to continue to train more. And so rather than focusing on the second variable in this equation being the, the, you know, training, training more, I focus rather on, you know, this indirect variable of the more you enjoy training, the better you're going to get. Well, this has been really illuminating. And thank you for sharing your MMA and instructor thesis with us and giving us insight into your thought process in your new school. So thank you, Justin. Real pleasure having you guys here. Thank you. And if people wanted to find out more about you and your school, where can they find this information? You can find out um, all of this information more at modernmartialartsandfitness.com. And then I'm pretty easy to find as well on some of these platforms. I'm just at Justin Hamilton, J-U-S-T-E-N. And I'll put all these in the show notes. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.